Hello, and welcome to We Make the Future, brought to you by PyTop. I'm your host, Andrew Webb, and in these audio interviews, I'll be meeting teachers, thought leaders, scientists, and students, and exploring the future of education, making, and technology. Today's episode looks at the future of food in the classroom. Here's a taste, quite literally, of what's coming up. We're growing in the back of a classroom, but as our population approaches 10 billion people on planet Earth, what types of environments are we going to have to be able to do something like this in? What are they going to be able to do with that knowledge when it's all said and done? Is there anything that's going to be productive other than the fact that they'll do well on the test? If you just step back from the curriculum and you stop worrying about the test and what's on chapter three, and you let the kids start to tell you the types of things that they'd love to do, that's really where the magic starts to happen. Now, school dinners were often the butt of many a joke. I know mine certainly were. Uh, we were once served battered cods row at school. It was disgusting. Uh, but the future of food production is a very serious business, especially as the world's population is approaching 10 billion and the environment is under relentless pressure. We need to find new ways of ensuring there's enough food in our school canteens as well as our homes. Well, my guest this week, teacher Chris Regini, and his students are doing just that. Here he is to explain more. So, Chris, tell us a little bit about your school and your community. So, we are West Hollow Middle School. We're on Long Island, New York. We're a school of about uh, 1,200 students, ranging from ages 11 to 14. We have quite a diverse community, but we have tremendous buy-in from the community as well. So, I think that enthusiasm from our parents sort of permeates our school building, our teachers, all the way up to our central administration, really sort of establishes a level of accountability for our kids and for our parents. And describe the makerspace or the, I mean, what do you call it? Do you call it a makerspace or a computer room or what's that kind of space that you've told me about? So yeah, we a couple of years ago had some building administrators who really just decided that they were going to make the maker movement a priority in our building. So they've transformed our traditional library into a really impressive makerspace. They took one summer and we all arrived, uh, you know, fresh, ready to go in the fall. And they've just developed this really beautiful space that's well-designed and and fully stocked with a whole assortment of different tools and and assets for the teachers in the building to really use. And to be honest, at first, it, it was quite an intimidating room. You know, we saw all of these things and it was, for lack of a better term, more of a toy store that we just didn't know how to play in yet. So I I spent a good amount of time, uh, you know, that first school year, just eating my lunch in that space and just looking around and taking it in and trying to figure out, you know, how I was going to make it work. And so what sort of projects have you been doing in this space? Let's talk about those. So the first thing that I had noticed, I guess, was this this shelving uh, unit filled with these little Arduino kits, these little microcontrollers. And that just played to a certain part of my brain from, I guess, when I was a kid myself. And that was the first thing that I I guess I was drawn to. And I didn't know how to use them at all. I didn't know how I was going to integrate them into my classroom. And at first, I guess I was stuck in that trap of asking myself, you know, how am I going to make these things? How am I going to make this space improve the test scores of my kids. And then I realized I was asking the wrong question. I needed to realize how am I going to allow this space to replace the test scores of my students. So I just sort of dove in and I realized that if I waited until I understood them completely and I waited until I had a perfect plan, I was never going to implement any of it. So I just decided to go for it. And, you know, I brought them into the classroom and I explained to the students that we're going to learn this together. And uh, it's not going to be perfect. It's going to be messy. We're probably going to break some things along the way. And 
I think they were all in on that idea that we were going to learn together. And we adopted very early this culture of learning through failing. Uh, and the word fail stopped being a four letter word in our classroom. And it was almost a badge of honor. I failed. And, um, you know, this isn't my own, but fail is just a first attempt in learning. And from there, it really just it just grew. Well, grow quite literally because you've been doing some sort of farming projects. Tell us a little bit about those. Sure. So what I did have to do was tie it into the curriculum somehow. You know, how how are we going to use these really great things? And when I looked at the science curriculum that we were covering, it was really hard to sort of find a perfect fit for any of it. We had a, a unit on plants that had been coming up. And I was just looking at the traditional way that plants is, plants are taught. And I said, well, you know, we're teaching them about leaves and roots and, and, and things of that nature, perhaps photosynthesis. And what are they going to be able to do with that knowledge when it's all said and done? Is there anything that's going to be productive other than the fact that they'll do well on the test? So we started to just talk about it. You know, what do you want to know about plants? What what do you think we could do with this in, in terms of bringing it to the makerspace? Because we also happen to have this really great greenhouse right across the hall from our classroom. And we just started talking about food. And we realized that not many of us had any clue where our food was coming from. We couldn't name the farm where the salad we had eaten for dinner the previous night was grown up. So I think that's kind of what spurred on this, this movement of we were going to create a community garden right there in our classroom. And it was a bit crude at first. You know, we didn't really know where to start. Uh, so we started to, as most people do, Google it. And... Uh, you know, we, we landed on hydroponics. Um, it just seemed something that was controllable and something that was just really interesting and different. And that was the big key is we wanted to just keep things different. Um, and that first project really was, it was odd. You know, we brought in a bunch of junk, uh, you know, old soda bottles, PVC pipes, you know, string, aluminum foil. And we were just fashioning these little wick systems that we were able to successfully grow food in, in the back of our classroom. Looking at some of the images you sent me, this isn't cups of cress on a windowsill to sort of demonstrate something or little plants. I mean, there's a fully fledged farm. I mean, you could, you could cater for, you know, if not the class, you know, then at least a large portion of the class. There's some really, it's quite a healthy crop, right? Well, yeah. I mean, since, since the, the soda bottle days, we've, we've certainly iterated the project to a point where it is a full-fledged farm. You know, we had to take a look at our space and our limitations. And instead of the traditional moving outward, which is what, you know, crops tend to do, we decided, why don't we go up? Uh, and we started to adopt uh, a concept known as vertical farming. So we took what we knew and we started to make up some designs and attach them to the walls of our classroom. And we had landed on uh, a vertical technique known as NFT or nutrient film technique. And we also knew that we would have to be able to get these supplies readily. So we'd have to be able to go down to the local box store and fashion things together. And that that's exactly what happened. So we've got sort of a mouse trapping NFT system on the wall. And then we have a vertical shelving system of DWC or deep water culture systems. And I would say now we have about three dozen planting sites in the in the corner of our classroom that could feed <laughs> quite a number of families. <laughs> Obviously, the, the kind of learning outcomes for this or the potential 
natural usage scenarios for this are how we feed the world in the global population, what this might look like in urban areas, it might have usage on Mars, you know, and and and, and those sorts of things. Uh, do their students understand that? Is that part of their of, of their reasoning with this? At first, I think the problem was I was trying to have a bit too much control over that area. I wanted it to be so successful and I wanted every plant to grow. And I don't know that the students themselves other than looking at this really neat looking apparatus in the corner, really dove in and understood it. So we did have to design a way to teach with it. And we had talked about, yeah, you know, we're growing in the back of a classroom, but as our population approaches 10 billion people on planet Earth, what types of environments are we going to have to be able to do something like this in, where we're indoors controlling our environment, you know, understanding the variables and being able to produce a food supply for people. So we said, yeah, this can work in an urban environment. We can take, you know, pods where people store stuff and grow food in them. Um, we could be in the Arctic. We can be in a desert. We could be on a space colony on Mars. And that's, I guess, where we started calling it our Mars farm. And, and we could do this. We also realized early on that we couldn't just grow lettuce. Uh, we couldn't sustain ourselves on lettuce alone. So we started to decide to experiment with different species of plants and sort of grow a bunch of different crops all in one little system, which again, it, it wasn't perfect. And there was quite a number of things that we were going to have to be able to figure out. But that was exactly it. We've been figuring it out along the way. Our plants haven't always grown well. We certainly have failed quite a bit. But each year that we've been doing this now, that system has just taken on a life of its own. I love it. And is there something here as well about the learning that happens in, in this project actually cascades out into other areas? So that might be into you're suddenly then learning about nutrition and healthy eating or, or environmental things and all these other elements of a child's education where it, where it feeds in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it started out being about plants, right? So how can we take care of their root systems and their shoot systems and give them enough resources like light and water in order for them to grow? But then we started to think about heat and energy and their carbon footprint and what type of data would we be able to collect and analyze mathematically? What types of foods make sense for us? What types of foods make sense for other people? And it's really starting to take on um, its own identity. Every year the students have walked in and they've seen this thing that they didn't understand. You know, they look at it and it's this really sort of, I guess how I felt the first time I walked into the makerspace, this intimidating thing. There's wires and lights and pumps and moving water and they're intrigued. But by the end of the year, by the end of working with it, we've looked at this this apparatus and we've said, well, now what? Now what's going to happen? Um, and each year we've had a student or two say, what if we decided to not water this by hand anymore? What if we had machines start to do this for us? And that's where we've been able to integrate the uh, coding and the physical computing. I would say that of any of the other pieces, that's probably the one that we've integrated the most. As we realized we need, if we're going to grow this type of food in these alternative environments, we're not always going to be able to stock those farms with humans. So how can we control this, this growing environment from afar and how can we monitor it? So each year there's been a student or two who've said, let's take a look at watering or let's take a look at system pH or let's take a look at the photo period that we're giving these plants and how can we design something on our own that we've built. We understand the circuitry, we understand the coding behind it. And that I feel has been the really most valuable piece that's been added to this farm. I love it. That and the uh, California Reaper pepper. Have you, have you, have you still got that? <laughs> yeah, Carolina Reaper. Carolina Reaper. One of the things we wanted to see was 
could we grow sort of these mutant plants and, and be successful with them? So we've actually had this really wonderful opportunity to align our project with some work being done at Princeton University over here in the United States. And it just so happened that I came across a project that they were doing, vertical hydroponics. And I said, my goodness, I know enough to know that they've got to know more than me. So I reached out and uh, I got to visit their lab. And we've engaged uh, in a citizen science project since then where we are trying to reproduce their system to the best degree possible. Uh, and we kick them over some of our data. We've got nine different variables that we account for now, and most of which involve things like energy usage, water usage, and what type of yield we're able to produce within that farm. So the Carolina Reaper is sort of this little side project where we want to know, can we get these little suckers as hot in hydroponic systems as if they were growing in traditional soil? I love that. So are you going to kind of measure the, is it capsaicin? What's the, the, the heat element in? Yeah, exactly right. So um, we at our level aren't exactly going to be doing that. So when we get our, our yield of peppers, we're going to be sending it off to their labs and they are going to be taking a look at the um, the leaves, the roots and the, the peppers themselves to see if they're producing the same level of those of those oils. And a funny story, we had been growing hot peppers before this. And when we were talking about mixing all of the different species in one system together, at one point we had super hot peppers and tomatoes growing in the same deep water cultures. And we harvested the tomatoes and uh, we were eating them and we said, boy, these, these taste kind of spicy. And we didn't realize that by growing them in the same system, this was just one of those funny failures that the, the hotness from the peppers had worked their way right into the tomatoes. Wow. I love it. Brilliant. You spoke earlier when we, when we first talked about the China project that you have on the go. Just, just talk a little to that, please. Sure. So what we wanted to do was, again, understand the food needs of people other than ourselves, of cultures other than our own. And I've had some really unique opportunities to sort of communicate with, with different schools around the world, one of them being China. And uh, one of the schools we ran into in Nanjing just opened up about a $2 million greenhouse on their campus where they do more traditional type gardening. But we thought it would be a great thing to have their kids and ours start to talk with one another in terms of, hey, what are you growing? What are we growing? And how can we maybe trade our information? So, you know, it's still very new and very raw, but the concept is that, you know, we over here are going to grow some traditional Chinese greens and they over there are going to try to grow some of the, you know, staple crops that we find to be valuable. Along the way, our kids are going to chat about it, maybe learn a little bit about each other's culture. And then hopefully we have a successful grow on both ends and are going to swap some recipes and cook up traditional dishes using that produce from those gardens. I, I love that as well. And there's also a, a language element in there, a cultural element. There's much more the social skills, the teamwork, the collaboration, all those sort of soft skills. And, and also that language piece, I think, is really, really interesting. Yeah, 100%. We actually have Mandarin Chinese offered here in our school. So it was a neat cross-curricular project where actually just yesterday we had the Chinese students or the students taking Chinese come into our lab and they planted bok choy and then jumped on and uh, video conferenced with some of the students over in China and, and let them know their progress on it. So what we're going to be doing, hopefully, is having some of the students that are learning Chinese in our building translate for us and give us some simple communication skills that we can use as we communicate back and forth. That's, I mean, that's that's really fascinating because, uh, you know, they, they always say the best way to learn a language is to have some 
practical things to talk about. It's why most people can ask for, you know, two beers, please, in most languages, but can't actually have some much more than that. And I think that involving these other disciplines is, is fantastic. So, you know, it all sounds brilliant. What's the, been the biggest problem that you faced? Huh. So, you know, unfortunately, in the, in the systems and the reality that you work in, there are restrictions and there are budget cycles and you don't always get to move at the pace that you want to move. And I would say it isn't for lack of enthusiasm because we've had quite a, you know, a good amount of administrator buy-in, but you know, you can't always move forward right then and there. So just in terms of funding, a lot of it has been, I guess, out of our own pockets where you have to go and, and there's quite a bit of layout and there's got to be quite a bit of, of buy-in on your own end to just say, I'm making this investment right now. And if, if I build it, they will come, you know? So that's been a tough piece with it for sure, because there is quite a bit of startup cost if you want a legitimate hydroponic system, you know, to be in your room or you want to integrate things like Arduino kits or Raspberry Pis or the types of technology that we really enjoy using on a larger scale. When it starts to become more than experimental and a pet project and you really want to use it as a rollout to teach, that I guess has been an issue for us. But it's that transition of starting small with soda bottles and basic stuff and then proving the concept to sort of get on that road, right? Yeah, exactly. And you know, what I found too was giving the students the voice to express their enthusiasm and allowing the students out into the community and to speak to you know, school administration at board of education meetings has been the key to getting increased buy-in and a better flow of resources into our lab. When it's the teacher asking, it's applauded because you're taking this risk and you're showing initiative. But when it's students showing you what they're creating, when it's students expressing, hey, we love this so much that this is what we want to do next, that's when people listen. Interesting. Interesting. Tell us about some of the other projects you've made in the space, because there's quite a lot of exciting work going on there, right? Yeah. So, you know, we've got the hydroponic farm in the classroom. Uh, we've recently just kicked off a farm bot construction in the atrium of our building, which is a CNC sort of gantry type farming method, which is going to be able to cultivate crops in traditional soil. So we wanted the ability to compare soil to hydroponics. We wanted the ability to maintain that automation element where students are able to still build circuits code circuits and integrate them so that they can compare their data. So that's something that's very interesting to see where it's going to go. And then beyond that, you know, really, there's just a ton of other sustainability projects that have bloomed out of, okay, if we can start to put food on our plates right here in our classroom, what types of other things can we begin to monitor? So kids are starting to look at things like a paper recycling initiative throughout the building. And that's actually spawned some really crazy little gadgets and gizmos that the kids have designed. Uh, and it, it's really just interesting to see if you just step back from the curriculum and you stop worrying about the test and what's on chapter three, and you let the kids start to tell you the types of things that they'd love to do, that's really where the magic starts to happen. Bi-weekly, we've just opened up a genius hour where we put the, the engines in neutral and we say, look, for today, what do you want to study? What do you want to dive into? And I think you can access these students and for a moment, stop looking at these 12 and 13 year old kids as 
these little applicants, right? We're always worried about this grade and this end result and pushing through to the assessment. How do we just give them the ability to be an artist, a musician, a dancer, a, an athlete, an entrepreneur, a coder, an engineer? And it's, it's really been really quite neat to see. At the end of the day, they're 12 and they just want to play, right? They want to make a mess and, and to allow them to do that has been really, really rewarding. Oh, I love it. Uh, so plans for the future, what's, what's, uh, what's coming up? So as we've built out this, uh, this, this community project here, there's been quite a bit of interest throughout the remainder of our district. And we're starting to see that this project-based learning is something that we'd really love to move toward on a full-time basis, where we don't just get to sprinkle it in and integrate it when there's an opportunity. We really want to make it a more full-time venture. And I've been offered a great opportunity to design a class to do exactly that, which is an elective that our high school students will be able to take. And basically, we'll pick different themes throughout the year, like the future of food or sustainability or fill in the blank with wherever the kids want to go with it. And it's going to be completely centered around physical computing and coding, um, where they're just hands-on every day, not once a week, not every couple of days. It's just a full-time engagement in that, which I'm really excited about. And when you pitch that, I feel like sometimes people are still a little brainwashed in so how are we going to measure that? How are we going to generate these grades? And I've said to them, I feel like that will just take care of itself. And I know that that's a giant leap of faith for some people to buy into. But at the end of it all, the students that are going to do well on tests are still going to do well on the tests. And if we are really thinking about what are we equipping them with uh, when they go beyond the classroom, I would say, let's give them a chance to build a digital portfolio. Let's be able to badge them with all of these skills that they can then show up and say, look, yes, I did really great on my on my boards or, you know, my GPA is, is this. But how am I unique? It's because I've built this. Here's the code I've written. Here's a system I have personally worked on and automated. And I think that will will really be a, a neat thing going forward. Love it. Uh, if you were to give listeners and teachers who are thinking about trying to implement this or taking their first steps, what would be your three top tips? Speaking from position of success and and having having got there, what would be your three things that you would you would advise? Don't worry about being perfect. You're not going to be. No matter how much time you spend studying it, you can break the internet if you want to, reading every resource that's out there. You're still not going to be perfect. Just take the leap. Your students will appreciate you for it. And if you can stand in the front of the room and mess up and let them mess up and do it together, that's key. Number two, stop worrying about the tests. Stop worrying about the curriculum. There's plenty of time for the rest of our lives to worry about reaching a number. For this short period in their lives where things can still be pliable, let it be. And then finally, give kids the voice to share what's being done out there. You know, I think a lot of times we want to go ahead and we want to, to, to celebrate the things that are happening on behalf of our students. So we try to tell their story, let them tell the story. Try to put them in positions where they can be talking to their peers, the adults in their lives and their community and showing them what they know. It's, it's really a neat thing when you've got a 12 year old talking to a professional that's been doing this for 30 years and all of a sudden the professional is learning from the 12 year old. It's, it's, it's really, really great. 
I love it. I love it. That's so good. Uh, if people want to find out more, are you open to sharing your knowledge and experience? If people want to get in touch, is that okay? Education is open source. That's one thing that I've learned about the maker community is that we all share this thing uh, together. It's, it's, it's an organic sort of environment where it's not mine, it's ours. So of course, whether it be code, whether it be circuits, whether it be hydroponic knowledge or, you know, how we're, what vehicles we're using to communicate with other countries, jump on in. The water's warm. Love it. Thanks, Chris. You got it. Well, I hope that gave you food for thought. If you go onto our website and our blog, you can see some great photos and videos of Chris and his students. You really need to see his hydroponic setup to believe it. It's absolutely incredible. And some of the crops he's producing are proper big salads and peppers and and tomatoes and all that sort of stuff it's it's absolutely fascinating kind of reminds me of the 70s movie silent running he's just got this sort of automated farm system just churning out vegetables so uh, great stuff and really interesting and that work with that chinese school i think would be great and that sharing data and and all that stuff is definitely something that more schools should should be doing that is all for this week remember there are plenty more episodes if you like this one you might also like uh kind of look at the future in more broadly uh that's with mark stevenson that's episode five do check that out and um, if you go to anchor.fm forward slash pi hyphen top uh, you'll see all the episodes there and you can listen and it's also available on your favorite podcast app itunes stitcher spotify you name it we're on it until next time that's it goodbye